Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Azband, our Daf of the Day, Masafat Sukkah, Daf Kaf Vav, page 26. So, we were involved in discussions of how being involved in one mitzvah could exempt you from the requirement of the mitzvah of sukkah, right? If you are involved in a funeral or a wedding, or there are any number of mitzvot that are timely, right, that are taking of your time, that can then be a contradiction, I guess, or to the to the possibility of you taking that same time to go and fulfill your obligation in the mitzvah of sukkah. Now we're going to see a different kind of, I would say, counter indication for what you're going to be doing, what, what your obligation is with regard to mitzvot. We're moving further afield from sukkah, at least initially, then we'll come back to sukkah. Tanya, we learn in a brighter. I'm a rabbi, Hananya ben Akavya. We'll come back to what Rabbi Yosei Glili's position is in a minute. Let's get just get the keys down. Right? Rabbi Hanani ben Akavya says that those who are the scribes of Torah scrolls and of tefillin, tefillin and mezuzahs, and anybody who is, who are the the people who would sell the merchants of, you know, the above, right? Um, Sefer Torah, tefillin and mezuzah, and the people who would then the the wholesalers and the retailers, right? Which is interesting because in my experience, I actually find that the the scribes themselves are often the people who are selling their same, let's say, the, the parchment of the mezuzah. But also, I guess you could go into a regular store, and or at least this is the discussion, right? If you have a peddler or somebody who's selling the... the they have bought, let's say, the parchments of tefillin uh, or the parchments of mezuzahs from the people who commissioned them, right? The, there's a recognition that there could be a chain of, of sale, uh, till you get to the retail, all of these people, all of these levels of sellers, and anybody else, and this is a pretty sweeping statement, anybody who is involved, anybody who's engaged in working on behalf of heaven, right? Including those who would sell tchelet. Tchelet is the dye, right? For the blue, for the blue string in the, in um, tzitzit which has come back in recent years, recent decades, I guess. Um, but it was also lost for a very long time. But in the Gemara, it was a clear practice and known. right? So this is not just people who are involved in the holy work of the scribe, scribal arts, and not just the people who are selling Sefer Torah and Tzvillin Muslims, but even the people who would sell the, just the blue string for the tzitzit. All of these people are exempt from reading Shema, meaning from saying Kriyat Shema, and from Tfilah, Tfilah is the Amidah, and from Tfilin, meaning if you are involved in writing Tfilin, you don't have to wear them, and from Mikol Mitzvot Amurot Torah, and from every, you know, every commandment that's said in the Torah this year, of course, means positive commandments. It doesn't mean you can go, you know, go violate the negative commandments, but you're exempt from the obligation to do the positive commandments um, if you are if you're involved, I guess, professionally in any of the above. What does Rabbi Yosei Aglili say? 
שהיה רבי יוסי הגלילי אומר, העוסק במצווה פטור מן המצווה. or credited to him this claim that one who is engaged in one mitzvah is exempt from doing another mitzvah. And so this means that all of the retail, right, all of the selling points of not just the people who are actually writing the, the, the holy um, text, well, uh, you know, literally the, the parchments, um, not only the people who would be involved in actually making the dye and dyeing the tchelet, but even the merchants themselves This is now considered, at least according to this breakdown, considered to be um, involved, you know, doing a mitzvah to the extent that it will exempt you from even reciting Kriyatshma, which I find to be a pretty big deal um, in terms of how far this is going to go. We, it's not the same thing as the timeliness of, let's say, a wedding or a funeral or some of the other things we saw in the previous stuff, because theoretically you could say, set aside You know, set aside your your cloth, your parchment that you're working on and go say Krishna and then come back. It'll take you, you know, a very short amount of time to fulfill the one mitzvah while you pause the other mitzvah. But that is not the approach of this um, breita. I, I wonder also, you know, it says the sellers of these things. Does this mean anybody who's engaged at any stage or if there's, you know, an active sale at hand? Although, again, if there's an active sale at hand, I would think that We're not necessarily talking about something that will be so time-consuming that it will get in the way of your ability to say Shema a few minutes later or to, to daven the Amidah a few minutes later or put on tefillin and so on. I find this to be a very far-reaching uh, breita. So we have another breita, which is, again, on the, along the same theme, but here it brings us back to Sukkah. Tana Rabbanan, another breita. Those who travel during the day, meaning they're not necessarily involved in a mitzvah, but they're busy in the fact that they are traveling, they are exempt from, um, from the mitzvah of sukkah in the daytime. The chayavin balayla. But they would be obligated to sleep in a sukkah at night, to eat and sleep in a sukkah at night. If you're traveling at night, then you're exempt from the sukkah at night and you would need to yourself of a sukkah to fulfill your mitzvah in the daytime. What if you are traveling both in the night and the day? Then you're exempt all the way because the traveling apparently takes precedence. What if you're on your way to do a mitzvah? Then whatever the time of the day is, it doesn't matter. The fact that you are on your way to do a mitzvah is going to take precedence over your obligation in sukkah. So, first of all, take note of the fact that we've shifted into Aramaic, where you know we're no longer in the Brighta. And there's a discussion here of what happens. We've got Rav Chista and Rav Bar Rav Huna, when they would go to, to visit the Reish Galuta, the, the exilar, right? And it would be Shabbos, Shabbos the Shabbat Shabta de Rigla, that's the Shabbat Cholamoy. It's the Sabbath of the festival. And so they would go to visit the Rishkaluta. Havugadu Arakta de Sura. They would sleep on the banks of the Sura River in Bavel. Amre, Anan Shluche Mitzvah Anan Upturim. They said, We're on our way to go to a mitzvah. 
and we're exempt from the mitzvah of sukkah, meaning it's shams cholamein moed, including of sukkot. And so you would think that they would need a sukkah as they're traveling to go visit the Reish Galuta, but apparently this is considered, or at least they would claim, that it was enough of a, of a mitzvah to be exempt from needing the sukkah to begin with. And then, and with this, um, I'm going to end this this uh, series of exemptions. Tana Rabbanan, another breita. Shomrei ha'ir b'yom, p'turim in asukah b'yom, v'chayvim b'layla. Shomrei ha'ir b'layla, p'turim in asukah b'layla, v'chayvim b'yom. The guardians of the city, the watchmen at the city, at the city's entrance, right? And anybody who's off watch is exempt from a sukkah at the time that they have their shift, which makes sense. Right, you're, it's a different kind of, of involvement. Perhaps it's not the same thing as going to a wedding or a funeral, but they're involved in, in being alert to, to guard the city. You know, how could they have to then you know, take themselves off their post to go do, a, to go do the mitzvah of sukkah? Shomreha ir balayla. No, I'm sorry, I've read that already. Shomreha ir ben bayom uvin balayla. Pturim na sukkah ben bayom uvin balayla. People who would have a variety of shifts over the time zone, over the different times of the day, would be exempt from whenever it is that their shift was. Shomrei ganot of pardasim pturim na ben bayom uvin balayla. Liavde sukkah hatam volete amar abaye. By amar, rather. Teishu kein tadur. The last little bit here says, those were the guardians of of gardens and orchards, right? People who would be on watch at the outskirts, I guess, of thieves, right? Um, whatever their time is that they are guardians of these places, they are going to be exempt from the mitzvah of sukkah. And then the Gemara says, and I feel like finally the Gemara is saying, this, making the statement, you know, let them set up a sukkah there on the as their watch booth, right at the at the entrance to the garden or the entrance to the to the orchard, you know, let them set up a sukkah there and and then you know dwell in the sukkah. Why would they be exempt, right? You don't they don't need to be exempt given where they are. Abaye Amar. So this is where Abaye's statement says Tishvu, the mitzvah of sukkah says you will reside, you will reside. This of course is a quote from Vayikra. Um, you will reside kein taduru, meaning. Here, the English doesn't quite do the, the Hebrew justice if we've got residing as compared to dwelling, right? Teshvu, living in the sukkah, um, as if you are living in your permanent house. So the fact that you could set up a sukkah, you know, that's right outside your orchard or whatever, it would be a lot more complicated than, you know, just making sure you've got a, a little bit of a lean-to roof over your head. The idea, and we've seen this, right? All different kinds of complicated sukkot that you could set up and yet, in this case, we say, "Oh no, it's going to be too much to set it up as a as a real sukkah kein taduru that you could really dwell in, given the makeshift nature of where you are." So, therefore, the exemption, you know, will 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 take hold. So, just with the one last thing I'll say is that this this claim, right, tishvu kein taduru, that you should dwell. You should reside like you will dwell. As I said, the English doesn't quite do the Hebrew justice, but there's a recognition that your your temporary residence needs to be like your your permanent residence. But this phrasing kein taduru is is you know essential to the discussion of sukkah. We haven't come across it yet, or not to my recollection that we've talked about it. But here it is, and and it really does I think permeate the nature of sukkah in terms of how we go about thinking about it. Yeah, we haven't come across that um, 
that concept yet. And I think it's interesting to see sort of where we, you know, Osik B'mitzvah, Patzer B'mitzvah, and sort of where that entire conversation sort of ends up going and how expansive of a category it really ends up being. Um, yes, exactly. That's why I say I feel this is very far reaching, much further reaching than I might have expected. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to move on to the next piece of the DAF, which gets into activities that could be done, let's say, awry, um, right? Meaning, you know, either casually or uh, not with sort of any regularity. And so this was based on the Mishnah, which said, that if somebody needed to eat or drink, presumably, you know, some sort of, we said maybe it was like a casual meal, but sort of not your breakfast, lunch, dinner, you know, sort of you're just snacking or something like that outside of the sukkah. And so the Gemara asked the, the obvious question, how much is considered to be sort of this achilat arai, right? How much food or what would it mean to eat this? How do you define this? I'm a Rav Yosef. So Rav Yosef says, Tarte uh, right? So it's either two or three sort of egg bulks of bread or, you know, of the food or something like that. Amarlay Abai, so Abai says to him, remember, Rav Yosef is Abai's uh, Rabbi, right, so it's, but often a person's not really full with that amount of food, right, and then you're going to say that if you eat this two or three, you know, egg bolts worth, this is considered to be a formal meal, but nobody's actually full on that. Ella Amar Bai. So Bai says, what really should the amount be? Kidditaim Barbe Ravala, right? The amount that a student of the Academy of Rav tastes and then enters basically the Beit Midrash to hear the lecture. So in other words, the idea is that like, let's say, you know, you're going to hear a lecture, a class, and you know, you'll sometimes like sort of grab something just to sort of fill you up for that period of time, right? It's not meant that it's supposed to sort of like tie you over for the next four or six hours. It's that amount of food, right? That That's sort of what achilat um, arai is. So it's a very, very, right? So I guess a little bit what the machlokas is between Rav Yosef and Abai is, is, is it an amount of food or is it sort of the circa, the, it, it obviously, Abai's opinion is, is an amount of food, but the way he's deriving that amount of food is by looking at a case of where somebody eats without formality. It's like a grab-and-go type of situation. Um, then the Gemara goes on to say, Tanu Rabbanan, Ochlin Achilat Arai Chutz Sukkah, right? So they quote a price here that you can eat this, you know, Achilat Arai outside of the Sukkah. Be'en Yishenim Sheinat Arai Chutz Sukkah. But you're not allowed to sort of have a brief type of sleep outside of the sukkah. My tama I'm a Ravashi, Gezer Shama Yerdin. So what's the reason for that? So Ravashi says, because we're ner- nervous, you may say you're just going to take a brief nap, right, outside of the sukkah, but what are you going to end up doing? You're going to fall into a very deep sleep. What I found so interesting now with this Gemara is, is that the topic on the Mishnah is, was really about eating, right, the Sahil Arai. And then the Gemara brings in through this Mishnah the concept of Shainat Arai. And then basically spends, gets on this very long tangent afterwards about what Shainat Arai is. How does it involve wearing tefillin? Because remember, at this time, or ideally, 
people wore tefillin all the time. Can you fall asleep with tefillin? Can you not fall asleep with tefillin? But the one comment I wanted to make here is it's striking to me how little time is spent on this particular topic of the eating. Because I think when we think about sort of how we do sukkah, and I think some of this is sort of the American experience of sukkah, and maybe you'll disagree with me, that like barely anybody sleeps in the sukkah because it's honestly just so cold, especially if you live in the Northeast. So it's much more about the eating, right? Can we eat something out of the sukkah? Does it have to be in the sukkah? But nobody really talks about the sleeping. But on this page of Gemara, the sleep is what gets much more attention than the actual eating. And I found that to be very interesting here. I think your point about where in the world you're located is significant because certainly there are plenty of families in Israel that do not sleep in a sukkah. I mean, that are meticulous about, the same people who are meticulous about eating a sukkah and don't necessarily sleep in a sukkah, but so many people do. And I do, the weather is certainly part of it. You know, the the ability to, I don't know, it's it's still... It's not even Indian summer. You know, there's no such thing here really as Indian summer in Israel. The idea that there's a, a cold spat before you end up, you know, then you have more warmth, I guess. Um, and that should be around the time of the harvest festival of Sukkot. But it doesn't happen here. It's just warm, 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 warm until it hits the rainy season, which officially, of course, is at the end of Sukkot, right? This is, a, you know, we've talked about this in terms of, and we'll talk about it more when we get to Ta'anid, if I'm not mis- mistaken, about when we come to ask for rain. Um, it's, you know, it's not supposed to be raining in Israel over Sukkot, so you can sleep no, in your Sukkot. Right, so I think this has to do with that. But just getting back to the food thing, like, again, for all the discussion we've had in, let's say, you know, uh, in Masach Shabbat or Pesachim or Yuma, when it came to things about eating, it is striking how little discussion there actually is about the eating of Achilat right Now, again, you're not fulfilling a mitzvah, and there's going to be a later Mishnah on about whether or not you actually have to go out of your way to eat in the sukkah itself. But the, there's, like, no discussion about the shirin. Like, it's almost like, yeah, you'll kind of know what Achilat right is because you'll know what it is. We just get this one opinion of Rav Yosef and this one opinion of Abaye, and then the Gemara sort of totally moves on from there. Um, I think, and this is where we, I feel like we always have this conversation, or at least I always do, um, this concept of having an official shiur, right? Like a, a fixed shiur that this is what is considered eating, and this is what is, you know, eating and temporary eating or a snack versus a meal or whatever. I find it always a little bit difficult because we know that different people have different appetites. And so I'm just I'm just pointing it out, meaning I don't think that it's you know, time for a discussion about it because as I say, it comes up anytime that we're going to have a shiorim about this kind of thing. But the fact that we've got, you know, this is what's gonna consider satiating, satiating filling for one person is so not filling for the next person and vice versa. It seems, it always seems a little bit difficult to say, now you've hit, you know, that's only considered Achila Arai, and this is considered Achila Keva. Yeah, I, I totally hear that point. And then I just want to read one last thing on Ahmed Bet. Um, there's just, a, you know, it, it was just such a nice little piece about Abaye here, right? So they now get into a little bit of discussion just about sleeping in general. I'm a Rav, I saw a lot by Yom, not Hasus, right? A person is not allowed to sleep more than sort of the sleep of a horse. Right. So what exactly that means, I'm not sure. You can look at whatever commentary you want. But Kamashinata Sut, she team Nishme. How long is that? It's 60 long breaths. 
So it's a, it's a certain period of time. But the idea is, is that if you sleep longer than that, you sort of, you're not doing your, what you're really, you're wasting your day, right? You're supposed to be learning Torah, doing things like that during the day. And you're wasting your day taking a nap. Now, I will say this struck me personally. I'm a crazy power napper. I could nap every day of my life if I was given the option to. <laughs> but this, I guess this is what it is. It's kind of like a power nap. Then a bai comes, Amar bai, Shmite Damar Kedarav, Udarav Kedarabi, Udarabi Kedadavid, Udadavid Kedasusia, Udasusia Shitina Shime. So then a bai says the sleep of the master, he's talking about Rabba, is that like Rav? And Rav slept like Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, and Rabbi Yehuda Nasi slept like that, like King David, and King David slept like that of the horse. And, and the horse is 60 breaths. And we know that one of the stories, it's not in this particular Gemara, is that David Amalekh, at a certain period of time, there's a Gemara that talks about that he didn't want to sleep. He tried not to sleep at all. He tried to always be sort of osik uh, in learning Torah so that the Melech Hamavis could not come and the angel of death could not come and actually kill him. So presumably what Abai is saying is this is a list of people who really slept a very, very short amount of time because they were always immersed in Torah. And then the Gemara goes on to say, Abaye, Havi Naim Kedemayel, Mi Pumpedita Lebe Kube. But Abaye would sleep during the day for a period of time that it would take to go from Pumpedita to Be Kube. So presumably, this was a longer period of time. It was some type of travel time. Kari Ale Rav Yosef. So, what did his Rebbe say about him? Ad Mataya Tiltishkav Mataita Komishinatech. So, he quotes a Pasuk here from uh, Mishle. Chapter six, verse nine, where he says, how long will you sleep sluggard or, you know, lazy person, right? When will you arise from your sleep? So Rabbi Yosef, you know, he was very critical of Abai and he felt that Abai sort of slept more during the day. So I just, it's not that I have a tremendous insight about this, but this is just one of those like lovely passages where the personalities of the uh, the Amorai really comes through here. You know, that Abai sort of is giving us a list of people who were so well known for sort of never sleeping and always being busy. And then you sort of have Abai's own Rebbe comes afterwards and is very critical of Abai that basically like he sleeps too much and it's sort of a, a lazy person thing to do. I love this. Um, as one who doesn't get that much or not enough sleep anyway. Um, I will to that and does not sleep. <laughs> The power naps, though, I think are really very helpful. I remember when I would be full-time in the Beit Midrash, and for people who have not spent a good amount of time sitting in a Beit Midrash, like, a, you know, long days, it can, even though you're not really being very active physically, it can be very tiring. And I think power naps save a lot of people because you, like, put your head down for five minutes, and then, boom, you wake up and you're refreshed, good to go. I feel like Chazal gave us a good model for this, which is not to say it should get in the way of sleeping at night, but... I think that there are days where it's very helpful. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Robin and Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.